I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's guest is probably the most outspoken person I've had on the show so far. His name is Scott Galloway. Scott is a professor of marketing at NYU Stern and the founder of Section 4. He was also the founder of the e-commerce firm Red Envelope and the marketing firm Profit. A previous guest, David Ocker, is vice chairman of Profit. I highly recommend his presentation on YouTube called The Algebra of Happiness. In it, he tells it like it is and tells it like he sees it and explains what makes people happy. Spoiler alert, it is not pursuing your passion. Scott served on the board of directors of Eddie Bauer, the New York Times Company, Gateway Computer, Urban Outfitters, and the Berkeley Haas School of Business. In this episode, he shreds Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, the thought that colleges should open back up in the middle of a pandemic, and cluelessness in general. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now, here's Scott Galloway. Generally speaking, the people that are the happiest are the ones that you would might logically assume would be the least happy, and that is across income levels, ethnicities, regional factors. The cohort that is the happiest are seniors. And generally, they've decided that life is short. They start taking stock of their blessings. They typically are out of kind of their that stressful income earning and child rearing years. And they, quite frankly, they just garner more perspective and they take things in stride. But across almost every um, cultural economic cohort, the happiest people are seniors. But what if you're 25 years old and listening to this? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the strategy can't be, oh, well, the key wait, to happiness is to get old. Yeah, okay, right. so let's, let's cut across. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's then try and find the signal across all those demographic okay. groups. The, if there is a secret sauce, and there's a bunch of them, there's no one thing, but the thing that the strongest signal, according to most of the studies that have been done, are it's really the the depth and number of meaningful relationships at work. Do you feel respected and admired? And do you respect and admire other people amongst your friends? Do you get a sense of joy and camaraderie? And do you know they feel a sense of joy and camaraderie from you? And then most importantly, with your family, do you feel an intense level of support and love? And just as importantly, do you know they know that they are intensely loved and supported? But the grand study, which is kind of the largest longitudinal study on happiness, conducted over, I think, 80 years. All the principal scientists had to be swapped out because they kept dying. But basically, they started with with 419-year-olds, tracked them for 80 years until the last one died, measured every, like, just all manner of things, and then, and then constantly surveyed them on how happy they are and then tried to figure out correlations. And they found that they, that's 400-page study write-up. And the first sentence is the best opening line of any, of any academic study. And it reads the following. It says, happiness is love, full stop. And I just, that's the best opening line for any. (laughs) So look, it it comes down, it comes down to relationships. Happiness is in the agency of others. So what happens now in a pandemic where many relationships, particularly professional ones, are digital? You know, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. I believe COVID-19 is much more of an accelerant than a change agent. And that is, if you took the three biggest trends in your business or in media or in income inequality or racial injustice, whatever it might be, you just take those lines out 10 years. And that's kind of where we are now. The metaphor or the best example is e-commerce grew approximately 1% a year as a percentage of total retail from 2000 to 2020. We were sitting at 18% of all retail was transacted through digital channels. 
And then in 12 weeks, it jumped to 28%. So we literally had a decade in 10 weeks. And I think that's happening across almost every major trend or line we see. And so I would argue that same is true of your relationships. And that is, I think there's going to be more marriages and babies and second marriage and a lot of divorces. I think if you're in a good relationship, this this reinforces it. I think if you're in an unhealthy relationship and you have kind of comorbidities, for lack of a better term, the relationship ends up in the ICU. I don't know about you, but when I talk to my friends, my friends who are struggling with marriage or relationships, you look at it and you think, well, they weren't great to begin with going into the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And then the folks that are blessed with a strong partnership, it seems like that partnership is helping them through this. So I don't, and, and in terms of work, you know, that's a whole other ball of wax. I know you've done some thinking around this, the kind of remote, I think the whole remote thing is really interesting, but I wonder if at the end of the day, a, a lot of imp- it's going to hurt or increase income inequality because you live in Santa Cruz and you figured it out. You have the brand equity to kind of re- work remotely. I think a lot of people need the advantage to show that they can show up to work, establish relationships, put on a suit, put on a dress, have the EQ to navigate the policy. I mean, if you have those skills, being at HQ, you're three times as likely to be the CEO when you spent the majority of your career at, the, at HQ. You could run the European division and knock the socks off, the cover off the ball, but it's still the CEOs are usually the guy or gal that's around HQ and making in-person relationships with the key, key decision makers. Everyone's so excited about working from, from home, but if you move your job to Denver, they might just keep moving your job east and it might end up in New Delhi. So I think there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences from working from home. Well, I, I I know that you use two by two matrices. So if we were to concoct the two by two matrix where mm-hmm. it's you know skilled and unskilled, contractor and employee, those four boxes, sort of like how you did that for colleges, mm-hmm. the the ones that are going to survive, the ones that are at risk, the ones that are going to die. I've gotten so much shit for that guy. You can imagine how many people. I love that away. matrix. Oh I love God. that matrix. The chancellor of UMass Boston just called me. I just told me I had shoddy, irresponsible work. I mean, anyways, I've pissed off a lot of important people. But anyways, go ahead. I'm glad well, you liked it. So, I got one guy. So you, must, so you must be doing something right. Yeah. So okay. Right. So. So let's let's take the four corners. So if you're a, a skilled employee, mm-hmm. although you just said a skilled employee may end up with his function or her function in Bangalore. So skilled employee, good or bad for a pan, okay. vis-a-vis pandemic? I don't think you need a matrix. What the data yeah. here is pretty clear, and that is, yeah, if you're making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, it means mm-hmm. there's a sixty percent likelihood you can work from home, and only a ten percent likelihood you've been laid off. If you're making less than forty thousand dollars a year. Only 10% of those people can work from home and over 40% have been laid off. So everything we feared, we've literally gone from an economy that had some very unhealthy attributes around income inequality to a Blade Runner dystopia overnight. So I'm, let, let me ask you this. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to give you a thesis and you tell okay. me if I, I think about your life. I don't know you well, but I know I have a sense for what you do professionally and your skills. You are in the top 1% economically, spiritually, professionally, brand equity, your presence in the marketplace. Over the last 12 weeks, you're living your best life. You're, I bet you're wealthier. I bet you have less reason to leave the beautiful place you leave, you live. You have access to great health care. I would bet the last 12 to 16 weeks, other than obviously the empathy for what's going on and our fears, mm-hmm. that the people in the top 1% are doing better than ever. We're living our best life. And th- this has taken, we've literally moved from a 
an economy that was unhealthy to this Blade Runner dystopia where the 1% billionaires have added more value to their wealth in the last 12 weeks than in any 12-week period previous. If you own tech stocks, if you have a job where you can do it over Zoom, if someone had said to us 12 weeks ago, you're going to have to hang out, your, your stock portfolio is going to go up, you're not going to get on planes, you're going to hang out with your family, you're going to watch a ton of Netflix, you'd say, okay, I'm in. So Sign let, me up. Yeah. Let me start right there. Distinct of knowing what's going on outside of your neighborhood, how's your life been the last 12, 16 weeks? Well, I, I would say that I agree in all that. I spend more time with my family. I exercise more. I surf more. I could focus on podcasting, which is my first love, et cetera, et cetera. But... Uh, the bulk of my income came from speaking, and mm -hmm. speaking was getting on a plane. Mm -hmm. And so that has gone from a lot of money to, well, it went to zero for a long time, mm -hmm. and now it's slightly ticking up. Mm -hmm. But my experience is if you get X for making an in-person speech, you get one-fifth X mm -hmm. for doing a virtual speech. Mm -hmm. All things being equal, the main part of my annual income is probably off by 80%. So I've had I've had a similar experience. I'm I'm my biggest revenue line is speaking. Mm -hmm. And my numbers aren't as dramatic. I've gone from charging X dollars to get on a plane and go speak at the, you know, the the Radisson in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yeah, and I've been there. <laughs> when you think about it, you get on a plane the day before. You get in late, you have bad food, sleep in a strange mm -hmm. bed. You get up in the morning, the CEO wants to have breakfast with you, which, you know, is fine. Mm -hmm. And then you get mic'd, you do your thing, you do your speaking thing, you go back. There's a weather thing, you get rerouted through Dallas, you're home later that night. Anyway, so it's a two-day two tour on a minimum. Yes. And yes. you get paid X. Now I yeah. get, I do these virtual um, fireside chats. I'm doing two or three this week. I get about a third of what I used to get. Okay. But I'm getting about twice as many. I have twice as many because the elasticity, in ch instead of charging X, I charge one third X, so it's doubled mm -hmm. my demand. So I've lost about a third of top line revenue. But if I'm speaking at noon, you know, I literally roll out of my house at eleven forty five. I have a tech guy who lives with me, and granted, this is I'm all, I'm very privileged around this. I go to my guest house. He fires up the he fires up the yeah. the, the the camera, the live camera, the lighting. And boom, I'm on. And then by 110, I'm back having lunch with my family. So for me, the trade-off there is just so worth it. It's just yes. uh, so that for me, it's been a reduction in one-third salary, but it's been wildly accretive, kind of spiritually or economically. And I would I would imagine the same thing will happen with you. Yeah, I, I think it's a matter of time. And listen, I don't mind making, let's say I use your ratio, I don't mind making three speeches to make what I would have made in one speech mm -hmm. that took two days. I'd, mm -hmm. I'd make that trade off all day yeah. long. So yeah, that's cool. So do, do you see any other e-commerce is obvious, any other opportunities that the pandemic has created? Yeah, there, there's what I would call the loosely speaking, and I'm thinking a lot about this. I'm, I'm finishing a book called Post-Corona and trying to get it out as quickly as possible because uh, most of it will probably be wrong and perishable. But the it, 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 the way I would loosely describe opportunities is position yourself around what I would call the great dispersion. And if you think about the two most disruptable industries, and I define disruptable as an industry that has raised its prices faster than inflation without any underlying increase in customer satisfaction or productivity or innovation. So let's think about tech where you spent the majority of your life examining mm -hmm. tech trends. Every year, the product gets better and it gets cheaper. <laughs> That's kind of the gangster cocktail. Most industries 
uh, get a little bit better and a little bit more expensive. Healthcare and education have not gotten better. I mean, you could argue that the technology around healthcare has gotten better, but our life expectancy is going down. Most consumer satisfaction around healthcare is flat to declining, but the prices have skyrocketed. And then my industry, we've raised tuition 1,400% over the last 30 years, while inflation's up you know, 120%. So we have raised prices just, just astronomically. They've exploded. And if you walked into a class in 1990 and then one now, you wouldn't. a lot of times it wouldn't look, smell, or feel any different. So I think healthcare and education are going through this incredible dispersion because 99% of the people who will contract, endure, and develop the antibodies for the novel coronavirus will have never entered a, a doctor's office, much less a hospital. And because they swept aside a lot of the regulation, because we're coming up with interesting technologies and re- remote medicine and telemedicine, I'm coming out of college. I understand the intersection between technology and products. To get into remote healthcare, remote medicine, to me, seems like a great career. The same thing is happening in education. If we come out of this pandemic with 50% of classes online, and you know, the dirty secret is the kids don't come to college they come to college for community, but not necessarily the community that takes place in the classroom. And there's a lot of right. classes where you could probably match or nearly match the in-class experience via Zoom or other technologies. And if you just take 50% of your classes online, you effectively double the, the capacity of the campus, potentially lower prices. I'm working with the University of California around trying to figure this out. So there might be this dramatic increase in capacity and in innovation. So I think education is an extraordinary opportunity. So if I'm, if I'm a, I think a lot about where I would want to invest my most precious asset as a young person, that's my time, my human capital, I would be really interested in remote learning and remote health. And let's take the extreme case. Mm-hmm. So is an online Harvard education worth 60 grand? Oh, 100%. It's probably worth more than that because mm-hmm. the Harvard... It's about, I think it's about a three hundred and fifty or $380,000 ticket for the full four years. Uh, it's worth exponentially more than that. And also, you got to keep in mind, and this is even more income inequality at work, kids who go to Harvard and Yale probably pay less tuition than kids who go to tier two schools because they have such extraordinary endowments that while their sticker price is $58,000 a year, except for the international students who pay full freight, the majority of the kids don't pay that. They get all kinds of scholarships. And so, the net the net tuition is much different than the sticker price. And the most well-funded institutions often have lower, have actually lowered tuition over time as they get more and more endowments and financial aid and things like that. But the certification, which is really where the value is, the certification that Harvard provides an individual over the course of their lifetime is still much greater than $380,000. Now, when you start going into tier two schools and tier three schools, where we have convinced We've preyed on the hopes and dreams of the middle class and convinced parents that you have to send your kid to college no matter what the cost, and they don't get into a tier one school. They get waitlisted at a tier two, and they end up at a tier three school at the same price. That's probably not worth it. But we continue to kind of promote this cartel where a lot of middle class households end up paying for mostly in debt a Mercedes and get a Hyundai. (laughs) <laughs> but if you get into Harvard, if you get into a tier one school and MIT, oh yeah, it's still a, it's still a fantastic value. What might be interesting is that if that's true, if it's really the certification and the certification is more a function of getting in, I can see an environment where people apply to these schools, get in, and then don't go and just put in on the resume admitted to Harvard, MIT, but didn't grad, didn't go. Really. 
You, and you think that's a proxy enough for recruiters four years later? Some of the most successful people in the world, Harvard dropouts. The, the key isn't the education mm-hmm. you get at Harvard. The key is getting in. Because what, what these universities really are is they're, they're, they're the world's most fine-tuned, rigorous HR departments in the world. <laughs> if you can get into Harvard, it means one of two things. It means you're like freakishly productive from the age of 15 to 17, or you have rich parents. And both are forward-looking indicators of your success and your ability to add value to a firm, whether you're going to into private wealth management for Goldman Sachs, if you went to Harvard and you have really rich parents or your father's the, an oligarch mm-hmm. or, the, or the sultan of something, you're going to be able to find a lot of capital for them. And you have the right connections. Or you're so freakishly remarkable at a young age that you will work 17 hours a day and be incredibly creative. I, I just did some business with Goldman and it just struck me. I, that I dealt with two young women there. And I'm like, this is, these kids, and their kids, like 24, are just so goddamn impressive. <laughs> and they all had the same credentials. They went to Ivy League schools. They were athletes. And so, look, the, the, these schools, at the end of the day, what we're really doing, the value we're adding, is we have the finest filter in the world of human capital. We run a cruel check, check on you. We make sure you take all kinds of tests. You have to write. You get... You get, you get references. I mean, it's the screening process is just so out of control. But that I wonder if we move to a place where it's the certification and the certification is a function of getting in, not even going. Wow. Wow. So that's the way to save 380 grand. But but I would make the case. So so for my career experience, I got my job at Apple because of a classmate at Stanford. Yep. And, And if Stanford, you know, at that time were purely virtual, I would have never met him. Mm-hmm. If I would have never met him, I would have never gotten into Apple. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that I got into Stanford. It's also that I met him. The networking. And, yeah. And, no and that might go away, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, it, and not only that, I mean, if we really want to get kind of meta on this, I needed four years. And for me, it was five years to kind of marinate and get some maturity and get okay. some intellectual curiosity and get inspired and row crew and push myself harder than I'd ever pushed myself before and fall in love and get my heart broken and establish resilience and, and build some tough skin and, you know, around my heart and find that, wow, I really do. I'm not meant to be a doctor. When you fail chemistry, it's pretty obvious you're not going to be a doctor. So look, that, that experience, that great liberal arts experience that you and I both experienced is priceless from a what just a I don't know an interpersonal or exper- yeah. experiential standpoint, but if we're just talking straight economics and ROI, I mean, what, what's okay. the kind of prototype? If we were to build someone out of central casting to go raise a hundred million dollars for the next great tech company, it'd probably be someone who got into Harvard, went a year, dropped out, went to work for a hedge fund, and then quit after eighteen months, and then started raising money for their startup. You mean Jeff Bezos? Yeah, or or Zuckerberg <laughs> or Gates. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a profile here. So, what's your opinion of while we're on the college topic? Mm-hmm. So many schools say they're going to reopen, yep. right? And I think that's ludicrous. Yep. So, have they basically sold their souls? I mean, are they doing it just because they need the tuition? Yeah, it it's a mix of arrogance and self-aggrandizement to believe that. Whenever you hear a university president saying we have a national responsibility to open our campuses, that's Latin for parents sending your tuition. Because, <laughs> and I'm being very serious. If you're a if you're a liberal arts institution charging sixty thousand dollars a year in tuition, you have twenty thousand students. In the next twelve to fifteen days, you're expecting six hundred million dollars in tuition, or or three hundred or four hundred million if you take out financial aid. 
And these are institutions, these are businesses that have very high fixed costs and are totally genetically incapable of cutting costs. So they're facing, they're staring down the barrel of financial crisis. Think about what other business has been able to expect cash flows within a two-week period consistently for 40 years, except they increase them three to 4% every year. There's no yes. business, there's no, there's no better business in history than education. And all of a sudden they're faced with five, 10, 30% of the kids not showing up. And if you're tier one, that's fine. You just go into your waiting list. Well, then tier two, all of a sudden there's real demand destruction there because all the kids that were going to come to your school because they didn't get into Stanford, they got, they're getting into Stanford because a bunch of kids are saying, well, I'm not going to go. So Stanford goes into their waiting list and it waterfalls down until you get to a tier three school. And I don't make say names anymore because I was here from that school. <laughs> they reach into their waiting list and they don't have one. And then all of a sudden overnight, their revenues are down 20 or 30 percent and they can't they can't survive that. And you don't want to be the dean of a school that oversees its rapid demise. You don't want to be the guy or gal that kind of lost the school. And so they're all making they're all in this consensual hallucination between their CFOs and parents that, yeah, we look forward to welcoming you back. It's outrageous. This is the equivalent of saying, OK, we invite your 18-year-old to go to a movie theater with windows that don't open 12 times a week. You know, what could go wrong? This is insane. And I want to be, I want to be clear, guy. I think people make a mistake of conflating the argument around K through 12 versus the argument around opening universities. It's a totally different argument. A nine-year-old at home who's not in school is developmental disability. It can bring the household down. It's a single mother who can't go to work. It's nutrition. It's all kinds of things. The majority of kids who end up in college are, are middle class and upper income kids. Your 19 year old stuck at home for 12 weeks is a nuisance. It's not a profound tragedy or threat to the household. So the, for me, it's easy calculus. We can't risk the types of outbreaks that we see happen when people cluster and all these pro, oh, I, these meetings, these crazy task forces trying to come up with protocols around AB classes, plexiglass, putting me in a hazmat suit when I teach in front of the class. None of that makes Make, means anything unless these students were to practice the same protocols off campus. And I don't know about you, but when I got around alcohol at UCLA, my sole focus was to not distance. And this the notion that, and so these decisions are being made by people in their 60s who quite frankly weren't very social in college. And they're under the impression that these students are gonna maintain these protocols while off campus. So. In my opinion, the, 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 and some universities have done this. The University of Massachusetts has announced this. Cal State has announced this. I think Harvard's announced this or some hybrid. They've said, look, we're the warriors against the virus. Our research labs are going to help figure out this thing. We're not the spreaders. We're not the enablers. And they're going to let people live on campus if they want. But they're going all remote. And anything, any university president right now that's saying we're going to have anything resembling a normal experience is just saying, please send in your tuition. that you are the dean or the president of a college in that yep. struggle or, or parish quadrant, yep. what would you do then? I'd do what every other organization is doing. I'd cut costs. I'd have yep. an open and honest, transparent conversation. I would immediately start furloughing and 
people and laying off people and cutting costs. And I'd right size the business. I'd, I'd use a crisis as a terrible thing to waste. I would invest massively all this energy, all this bullshit in these protocols to avoid a pandemic that hopefully will be over in a few months, or at least will have crushed the curve. And I would move to online and I'd come out and I would cut my tuition by half. I'd have an honest conversation with the students and the, and the parents and saying, we're going all online. It sucks. It's going to be an impaired experience. So we're going to, in recognition of that, we're going to cut your tuition in half. I'd cut costs by 20% immediately. And I'd reach out to my alumni and say, we're in a difficult situation here. And if you want us to continue to fulfill our mission, we need your help. And I'd also uh, lobby my state elected official to say, all right, you've bailed out the largest cohort of wealthy people in the world. And that is the owners of small businesses in the US. You need to help us. So I, I, denial is very expensive. I think you could see hundreds of universities basically start a death march. What department stores are to retail, tier three universities are to education right now. They're, they're about to go from the sixth or seventh inning to the ninth inning in about 30 days. And the net outcome of that, don't you think, is less educated kids? And isn't that a terrible outcome? Um, it's a, okay, so it's a complicated question. I think there, in the short term, there's all sorts of bad things that might happen. And I think mm -hmm. that, the, let me back up. I, I, think, I think it could end up being a net good. I think that this notion that all kids need to go to college this mm -hmm. construct we've invented as an acad as academics that I've been doing a bunch, a bunch of research. Administrators have you most universities of good universities have kept their enrollments flat. They're not educating any more kids. Despite your your college, Stanford has triple the applications it did thirty years ago. It hasn't increased freshman seats at almost at all which means it's nearly impossible to get into. And alumni generally like that because it makes a value of their certification. But is that, does that mean they're still serving their mission? Their tuition has exploded, costs have exploded. We need to figure out a way to use technology to dramatically lower the costs, expand the capacity such that we can take American public universities, which educate two thirds of the kids in these universities like mine, UCLA and Berkeley, back to the admissions levels where they were when I applied, where they let in a third of applicants, not 13 or 8%, because this generally represents a very unhealthy gestalt in our society. And that is we have fallen in, out of love with the unremarkables. You, you the title of your, 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 your podcast, <laughs> Remarkable People. I, I say, and I, this isn't a humble grad, brag, I was remarkably unremarkable. You know, I had a 3.1 GPA. I was like in the 80th percentile. I didn't have good grades, but I didn't test well either. And I applied to UCLA and I got rejected and I appealed. And the truth has a nice ring to it. I said, look, I'm the son of a single immigrant mother. My household income is $38,000. And if you don't let me in because I can't afford to go to college where I can't live at home, I'm going to be installing shelving. And this is my job. I'm going to make 17 bucks an hour, which is a good living. But that's where I'm headed. And they called me back and they said, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California and we like your story. And they let me in. And that's why huh. I'm here speaking to you. And if we don't huh. get back to admissions rates that, that, uh, give, that give the admissions directors the license and the, and the bandwidth to let in unremarkable kids, we're just going to end up where we are now. And that is the, the children of rich kids and remarkable kids get all the spoils. But 99% of us are not in the top 1%. And I can prove this mathematically. We need to move back. We need to move back to a situation where America falls back in love 
with kids who are unremarkable, but might have remarkable futures if we give them one of the greatest gifts in the history of mankind, and that is opportunities to get a fantastic education at a reasonable price. We need to move back to uh, falling in love with the unremarkables. I can just imagine what you think of standardized testing then. Well, that's just part of the industrial. The, 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 the testing industrialized, the, the industrial testing complex is largely, again, just to accrete more opportunity to wealthy people who can pay for people to take the test for them or for, which isn't, we've heard about some of that, tutors. realistically, tutors, testing prep. It just shows it's not, it's, it, it is, it, I, I, there's probably some sort of testing. But I, I don't. I, I think on the whole, I think most uh, w the really thoughtful university, I believe the administration, like the chancellor at Berkeley has decided that they're probably not going to continue. They're going to try and ch change the format uh, yeah. of these tests. What do you think, Guy? What do you think of these tests? I, I think they're no correlation to success, intelligence, anything. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. It's just, you know, who can get the best tutors? So do, do you think that without a vaccine or treatment that it is conceivable for business or schools to open? Because I don't. I don't see how it can be done. I'm with you. I'm scheduled to teach 400 kids September 15th. This is this is kind of how I laid out. My class is usually 160 kids. And it's yeah. it's 160 because the classroom will hold, only hold 160. And yeah. we've said, OK, by the way, the people running NYU and running Stern are some of the most thoughtful, decent people I know. And I'm out there like making life hard for everybody. So I want to acknowledge that right now. And they're doing their best and they're coming up with all these protocols to try and keep faculty safe and students safe. But, uh, you know, I've already stated I'm not going on back on campus until there's a vaccine. And. And I think a lot of faculty feel that way. We want to be good citizens. We want to be supportive. But I just don't think you're going to have, I, I, it, it, would we, what happens to these small towns? What happens to Lynchburg, uh, Virginia, when the population swells from 20,000 to 40,000 and a bunch of bartenders and janitors overwhelm the, the ICU locally? I mean, it's, just, mm -hmm. we, it's it, a bunch of people who are proven to be super spreaders coming to a dense area, going into rooms where the windows don't open. It reads like the opening scene of Contagion 2. So <laughs> we, we absolutely shouldn't have universities opening until there's, there's a vaccine. And I'm also, Guy, I'm, the more I think about it, I, I'm scared. I, I worry that the term vaccine gives us cold comfort that we shouldn't be attacking the enemy in what I'll call, and, and, and with NPIs, non-pharmaceutical intervention, because we all fall back on this notion that we're going to have this magic bullet. Americans love science and a magic bullet of a vaccine. And we were in a race towards splitting the atom at the end of World War II. And we knew that whoever got the nuclear bomb was going to basically get to decide to end the war. But that didn't mean we didn't do D-Day. It didn't mean that we didn't continue drafting people and putting them in harm's way and building super fortresses and building Sherman tanks and fighting the war and fighting the enemy. Here, it feels we've fallen into this a little bit in this cold comfort that the vaccine will solve everything. And when you read the surveys, the research, only 50% of America has said they'll take the vaccine. We can't yeah. get to herd immunity, according to Fauci, unless we get to somewhere between 70 and 85%. So even if you, realistically, if you can distribute and administer to 70% of the populace that's willing to take it, you end up with 35, a third of America has the vaccine. So I worry that we've fallen into this notion that if, if we find a vaccine in a lab, we're done. And I don't think we are. I interviewed Jerome Kim, who's in charge of the International Vaccine Institute. 
And he kind of has said the same thing. I mean, it's not as simple as oh, anyway. Okay. Yeah, we did that. Um, it's done. Yeah, everything's yeah, fine now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Last question about the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So if Dr. Fauci called you up and said, Scott, what the hell do I do? What would you tell him? I tell him you need you need better sources of information. Um, look, <laughs> I, I, I'm a I'm a fan of war history. My mother, uh, towards uh, during the Blitzkrieg, was taken by her father and her four sisters and her brother to a makeshift tube station where they would spend the night. And mm -hmm. on the way, one day during an, an, an alarm, a bombing alarm, her oldest sister was run over by a truck. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the kind of sacrifices people were making to defend against the tyranny of, of, of the Axis powers. And we get asked to put on a mask in Walmart and people start bitching and moaning. And so um, my sense is, A, we lack national leadership, but what's not discussed enough is a lack of citizenship and the ability or the, the, the willingness to sacrifice. So what I would suggest, what I would want to see from our leadership and from our citizens is what I would call the great distancing. And that is companies adopt a certain number of households, those of us who are economically secure and think of ourselves as being competent, organized people adopt households. And every one of these 105 million U.S. households is adopted. And we plan testing, distancing, the right food, the right space, the right adequate child care. And we schedule the mother of all lockdowns where you aren't delivered anything. You're given your groceries for 14 days, your Netflix, your online counseling if your kid's struggling. And we shut this shit down for 14 days. And you can take scheduled walks where there's no you will run into absolutely no one twice a day and for 14 days we severely distant and we put a nail in this motherfucking coffin and that is is my my small knowledge of epidemiology is if we can stay away from each other for 14 days more than 6 feet this thing goes away instead we have the mother of all slow band-aid rip you know ripoffs taking place where we keep waiting around for the silver bullet of a vaccine so I would like to see what I would call national leadership and the resources to do the great distancing where we all decide to, to those of us who are fortunate enough to be in the top quartile, adopt households, single mother with two kids in a small house. We're going to move you to a bigger living space. We're going to get you the groceries. We are going to set you up so that you can live some reasonable lifestyle for 14 days. We test the shit out of everybody. And everybody massively distances for 14 days. That's what I would want to see. Otherwise, I just think we're we're just we're just in a forest fire. Americans Americans have not shown an ability thus far to demonstrate the requisite citizenship. We cannot count on federal leadership. It just isn't there. Anyways, the great distancing. That's what I would I would like to see, Guy. Is it really only 14 days, or is it more like six to eight weeks? That, that's a fair question. I'm not an epidemiologist. My understanding yeah, okay. is if with the right amount of testing, if you yeah. can do rapid tests and ensure that people don't catch it in those two weeks, that the 14 days, but I, I want to okay. be clear, I have no domain expertise around the epidemiology okay. of this. So I don't, I don't want to give anyone, I, I, I'm, that's a long-winded way, way of saying, I don't know, you might be right. But whether it's two weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, the concept is that it's a matter of personal responsibility, citizenship, making sacrifices, wearing masks, all that stuff. It's not because we want the economy to pick up again, and it's not because we want to be reelected. Yeah, and people mistake <laughs> liberty with with lack of sacrifice, and and what we're doing now. The, the absolute best way to reopen the economy 
is to get rid of this thing. Yeah. And when and until it's done, it, we're not going to have a full scale opening of the economy. And Americans, our superpower is sort of a co- our optimism, our our superpower as a nation is our is our optimism, and it's ended. Yeah. Up, it's a comorbidity. It's a pre existing condition. And now I, I worry that that optimism is moving towards this silver bullet idea of a vaccine, not recognizing that practically speaking, it's probably not going to solve the problem. Let's talk about Facebook and social media at all. So first of all, do you believe that companies have a moral responsibility at all? I mean, you'd like to think you could call on their better angels. I think if you were running Facebook, it'd probably be a different company. But their primary responsibility is uh, shareholder to increase shareholder value. You know, in capitalism, we have this incredible agent called a for-profit corporation. And at the end of the day, they're, you'd like to think it's not shareholders, it's stakeholders. And I get that. But, but they're sort of doing their job. I think the real failure... Now, look, I, I think Mark Zuckerberg is a sociopath. I think he'll go down as one of the most damaging figures in history. And I think his number two is a $2 billion beard who will say anything to try and enhance her reputation or, or hold on to her wealth. I think they're terrible for, for, for humanity and for America. So I don't, I don't in any way want to let these folks off the hook. But there's a very valid argument that they are doing their jobs. And their job is to do delay and obfuscation, great innovation around products to increase shareholder value. And they have done that in spades who has not done their jobs is we as citizens, we have not elected representatives who hold these companies to the same scrutiny uh, as we've held every other corporation in history. We've let them grow way too powerful. We've let them pervert our elections, engage in activities that depress our teens and encourage suicide rates and self-harm, erode our tax base by not paying their fair share of taxes. You know, there's just on and on and on. So I would argue, look, we would like we would like them to behave, have more regard for the Commonwealth, show more character and more code. But if you're waiting for for them to call on their better angels, I don't think that's a good strategy. I think we need uh, elected officials to hold these firms accountable like they've held every other firm. And so who's at fault? We're at fault. We need to elect people who, who have the domain expertise and the will to do the same things we've done with petroleum companies, tobacco companies, and other firms that create a lot of economic value, but have exceptionally damaging externalities. But don't you think it's somewhat letting people off the hook by saying, well, as the CEO, that's their fiduciary responsibility. That's what they should be. You know, that's what they're supposed to be doing. So we can't hold them to a higher moral ground. I'm with you, brother. I just haven't found it works. I don't know how Mark Zuckerberg sleeps at night, but he does. And I don't think he's going to change. I think that if he figured out a way to, if he figured out algorithms to garner more Chobani ads and the result was a genocide in Myanmar, I think he would try and delay that information. I think he would try and avoid that scrutiny. I think he would threaten to sue the newspaper report. Oh, wait, they've done all that. They've done all that. So the history just shows right now, uh, to date, their actions, you know, judge someone by their words, not their actions. They don't, they're concerned for people's safety. They're concerned for our, the sanctity of our elections. I mean, think about it. Four years ago, we found out, or, or four years ago, it appears that Facebook had not made the requisite investments such that their platform couldn't be weaponized by people outside forces who were trying to suppress the vote in key swing districts. And we might have an illegitimate president, 
where at a minimum, we have the sanctity of our elections have been damaged dramatically. We, and a lot of people would argue we have an illegitimate president who is putting people on the Supreme Court who are slowly but surely eroding a woman's right to choice. So is Sheryl Sandberg this inspiring woman talking about the important debate of gender equality in the workplace, or is she the worst thing to happen to women in the last hundred years? And yet yeah. I get the sense she sleeps fine. I get the sense she's not, you know, she's down with her actions. I don't, you know, we need to do better. That's all I've heard in terms of her taking responsibility. And so I don't, I, I think I'd like to think what you're saying is right. I'm just not waiting on it. So if you are a an entrepreneur, a small businessman, let's face it, you know, one of the reasons why Facebook does so well is because if you are a real estate broker and you want to target people looking for houses in Santa Cruz, Facebook is the way. And there, there's not a lot of good alternatives. So what does Joe Blow or Jane Doe do? They advertise on Facebook. I don't uh, uh, look. Yeah, well, the, yeah. Florida Power and Light has a monopoly. I don't. They use natural gas, but let's assume they use coal, which is putting mm -hmm. emissions in the air. I still turn on my lights. I mean, yeah. it, 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 they're a monopoly or a duopoly. Facebook, uh, it, small business call me and say, I've heard your stuff, but it's a really effective tool for us. What do you think right. we should do? And I'm like, advertise on Facebook, but vote for someone to break them up. Moral clarity is hard when you live in a capitalist society and your kids have access to healthcare based on how much money you have. And so I don't, I don't fault small business for using Facebook. And by the way, Facebook, it's incredible. And from a small business perspective, I mean, it is yeah. just incredible. If you order a little black dress from fast fashion for $9.99, somewhere in that supply chain, there's just bad shit going down. But I don't expect people to stop ordering that little black dress for $9.99. I expect us to put in place regulations that ensure that our supply chain has doesn't allow child labor or that we don't offshore all of our pollution. So, look, I don't I don't fault small businesses. I think I was really inspired by some of the boycotts around Facebook. I found it sort of surprising. Facebook yeah. will replace those advertisers overnight. I mean, not even overnight, in a minute. They have 8 million advertisers. It's just yeah. it's the most elastic supplier or the most elastic revenue source in the history of modern business, the Facebook advertising business. It just fills in just another another company sees the opportunity to buy buy uh, placement and, and and words and and uh, targeting it and advertising it at a lower fee and they just fill in that void right away. So 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 what do you think when you see Tim Cook showing Donald Trump the quote unquote new factory that Donald Trump brought back to America is, you know, are you saying for Tim Cook, well, that's his role, fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders of Apple. So he should be palling around with Donald Trump if that means that Apple's not affected by the trade war. Yeah, he's smart. He realizes we have this like crazy weirdo narcissist. And then if you mm -hmm. show up and do a photo op with him and tell him he's handsome and, and, and stay out of his way, he'll leave you alone. And I mean, loosely speaking, Mark Zuckerberg is the most successful oligarch in history. An oligarch is someone who uses their proximity to power to earn money in a corrupt way. I believe they've struck an unholy alliance. They've met two times, maybe three uh, that we know of. 
And it appears that Donald Trump never says anything negative about Facebook. I think they've entered into this unholy alliance where he says, I can weaponize your platform and put out lies and outrageous content, which I'm very good at, or my agents are very good at, and it'll get me reelected. And I'll leave you the hell alone. I'm not going to push on the DOJ to break you up. I think that's basically the, the, the implicit or explicit deal they have. And when Tim Cook says, okay, everyone in my company, we're not unethical people, but I think compensation yeah. drives behavior. I think every action these guys take is on one thing, and that's getting the stock price up. And I don't... Hey, look, I'd, I'd like to think that they are be more focused on other things, but that's kind of their job. And and so I don't I don't fault Tim Cook for doing that. Okay. Do, do you think that people just don't give a shit about being on the right side of history? Because 20 years from now, it's going to be hard to look back and say, oh, they were just doing their job. Yeah, but we sort of suffer from in our society, we kind of suffer from this idea that what the Pope called this gross idolatry of the dollar and our heroes, you know, Israel, the heroes are military leaders and Britain, the heroes are typically government officials and the U S used to be athletes and celebrities. And I think it's transitioned to billionaires. My sense is that you're a married man that's sending out dick pics and somehow you turn into a hero. That's Jeff Bezos. <laughs> you know, the media decides he's a hero because he, he turned around to this bully, you know, how that happened. And or, or you call someone a pedophile or you commit securities fraud and say that you're taking your company private at $420 a share and the funding secured when that was a lie. But as long as you're an innovator, as long as you're a billionaire, we're down with you. I think that they have figured out, they've connected the dots and say, as long as I'm a billionaire, I'll be perceived as an innovator and I will be loved. I will be universally um, lauded. I will be able to get away with almost anything Young kids are going to want to hang out with me and CNBC is going to want to want to interview me and I'm going to get to go to the Academy Awards with someone better looking and younger than me. I think the society's decided that it's just really about money. Jeez. <laughs> so, so, um, do I got that? Do I have that wrong? <laughs> no. So do you have any reason for optimism? Any reason I'm for not hope? Not the message I mean, of hope. <laughs> Huh? No, you're not. No, look, hey, there's. Let's look at the glasses half full. We might be maturing. Yeah, let's. We might be maturing a generation of young people. How old are your kids, guy? Twenty-seven, twenty-five, eighteen, and sixteen. Oh, you're in the thick of it. So, and you oh, tell yeah. me, but I have nine and twelve-year-olds. I started late, but maybe we're hopefully we're maturing a generation of young people who are observing what's going on and realize that our superpower is cooperation and they're developing some grit. They've had to sacrifice a lot. I think if you're at college right now, you've had to sacrifice a lot. I think if you're yep. a young person, you're supposed to be making friendships and, and potential finding mates. You've had to sacrifice a tremendous amount here. And so maybe we're hopefully maturing a generation of, of future leadership that will realize our power as a species is cooperation. They'll realize that you can't just shut down borders, that we have to cooperate with our our brothers and sisters, that the greatest alliance in history was the North Atlantic Treaty, that we have to adopt best practices, that we have to show more comity of man, that, that, that if we let people, the bottom half of America, if we put them in a situation where they, they can't literally can't afford to go six weeks, six weeks without a paycheck, they end up putting themselves in dangerous places. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're maturing a generation of leaders that will repair the incredible death, disease, and disability that you're, you and me have levied on this country through poor short-term decision-making. 
How's that? How's that? Is, is that as optimistic as you get? That's about, that's about, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy, guy. Sorry about this. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, look, just realistically, right. we're, we're, we like to think of ourselves as exceptional. We're the wealthiest nation in the world. We spend more money on healthcare. We like to think of ourselves as the most innovative in the world. We have 4% of the world's population and 25% of the infections and 25% of the death. Czechoslovakia is flat in the curve. And we have, you know, we're, the company we're keeping right now is Brazil and Russia in terms of our response. Yeah. And we're the, we're the shortest midget among those three. Canada, just north of us, thinks they're living above a meth lab. I mean, they've managed to crush the curve. They're not that different than us. How, how did we, how, American exceptionalism is a makeshift Mack truck that's a refrigerated morgue right now. How did we get this so wrong? How did we, how can, we've ceded the mantle of global superpower to China. China is now the most respected nation in the world. We've shown an absolute disregard for people who are an economic, economically disadvantaged. We've taken every bad trend around income inequality and racial injustice and just absolutely exploded it. And we have a, a leadership that doesn't want people to wear masks until about six days ago. So... Look, I don't, you know, I, I hope this is a real reckoning. I hope America looks in the mirror and says, okay, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> well, I, I was at Apple uh, when Apple nearly died. And I, one of the lessons that I learned in my life is that uh, if you go through a near-death experience but don't die, it's often the best thing, thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you you would not sit down and say, okay, our strategy is to nearly died. That's what's going to fix the problem. But I, I swear, that's what happens. It, it was the near-death experience for Apple was a good event in, in looking back, and it enabled Apple to become a trillion-dollar company. But I would so, argue the difference is, I bet you and your colleagues didn't hate each other. You didn't divide into red and blue. I, I, I think without no. some sort of national service or something that creates, you know, in the 50s and 60s, when we came together as a nation to pass great legislation, it was because a lot of our leaders had served in the same uniform and they saw America mm -hmm. as being more important than their political ideology. And because our young people don't really, I don't think, have any sort of social service, because I think we've outsourced war, I think because you or my generation has never really been asked to serve, I would argue. I don't think you're old enough for Vietnam. I, I know I'm not. I just worry that we don't, we haven't, we've almost lost the ability to come together as Americans. It's, you'd like to think, Canada, they've come together. I mean, there's some bullshit up there, but they've managed to come together. Nations have managed to come together. But it feels like a lot of, you know, Britain and the U.S. haven't figured out a way to come together around this. So I wonder, I hope we, yeah. I hope we do. I hope we do. Well, maybe, it's not clear it can, but maybe the pandemic ultimately will force us to come together yeah. because the, the virus doesn't give a shit That's what right. party you are, what race you are, That's right? right? So we'll see. Uh, What's your, are you hopeful around this? Do you think, do you see us coming together around this? <sighs> I mean, I'm, I'm a three quarter full glass kind of guy mm -hmm. i mean it's just that's in my dna and i like to believe it but i think it it may be it may be natural selection i mean that's a you know thing about it. yeah <laughs> right yeah i don't know
Well, now that I've bummed your <laughs> listeners out, <laughs> next week on Remarkable People, Mary Poppins. <laughs> right. oh but I, I have to. I watched your videos and I read your stuff, and man, I, I, your your uh, YouTube video about the algebra of happiness or the math of happiness. That makes sense. I, I sent, I sent it to about ten parents who said you got to tell your kids okay so to, to, to cap it off yeah the 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 piece of advice that i loved yep. in that was that basically the career path for young people is uh, contrary to the bullshit about do what you love and the money will come mm -hmm. basically you said find something you're good at and work your ass off right mm -hmm. and I, I i tell people that listen if, if you went to work for a startup and you really didn't care about dogs and cats and pets, but you went to work for a startup that mm -hmm. was going to sell dog food and pet food online, maybe you were a PHP programmer or whatever, right? But you mm -hmm. went to this startup and all of a sudden you're selling a million cans of dog food per day. Mm -hmm. Trust me when I tell you, you will love dogs and cats. Yeah, you'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, you'll figure it out. Exactly right. So I'll, 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 I'll talk a little bit about uh, the notion you bring up, and then I, I, I'm going to try. I will end on a happy note here. So, okay. So first off, <laughs> it, we have two types of speakers at Stern. We have speakers yeah. three times a week, and they're one. They're yeah. from one of two cohorts. They're either really impressive, substantive people, or they're billionaires. We've decided <laughs> the billionaires have just incredible perspective on life, and they always end with the bullshit advice of follow your passion. And the guy on stage yeah. telling you to follow your passion made his billions in iron ore smelting. And what I tell the kids, as you said, is, okay, passion connotes this notion that if you don't love what you're doing, it must not be your passion and you should give up and leave that job. And most of us decide that our passions at a young age are sports or opening a restaurant or a club or going to work for Vogue. And generally speaking, those industries are overinvested with the human capital, which drives down returns. So you better be cursed and, and get incredible psychic income from those fields because you're going to get a lower return on investment relative to other industries. Your job is not to find your passion, if you will, but it's to find something you're really good at. There are a lot of tax lawyers in this nation that fly private, get great health care, have access to a selection set of mates that is much more interesting and attractive than they are, which makes them love tax accounting. It, and that is, if you are good at something and you're willing to put up with the bullshit, the grit, the perseverance, the political jockeying at a company to just become great at it, become best in the world at it. Whatever it is, the accoutrements of that will make you love whatever that is. So that's your job. Find something you're great at. And it doesn't have to be, I, I wanted to make my life in professional sports. And I got to UCLA and realized real fast, I just wasn't very good at it. And so I found, okay, I'm better at things like you know, marketing and accounting and, and kind of this business stuff, which seemed really dry and awful at the time. But I thought maybe someday I could be, I could be great at this. And then the thing I'll, I'll end on, and this is from... I've been thinking a lot about the pandemic, coming back to the pandemic, what the opportunity is. You asked me what the opportunity is professionally. I think there's a meaningful opportunity professionally to lap the competition. What do I mean by that? I, I'm not a workaholic, but as a matter of fact, I love not working and I want to spend more time the rest of my life not working. And in order to do that, I try and apply what I call functional speed. So you're in the Bay Area, Jerry Rice, Hall of Fame, wide receiver, mm -hmm. never the fastest guy, but they had what he, people called functional speed. He could accelerate and decelerate faster than any receiver, got open more and more touchdowns. I think you got to pick your punches and know when to really accelerate. And if you're blessed with the ability to work from home right now and make some progress, 
you should be working 24 by seven because there's a lot of big swaths of the economy are shut down and a lot of people can't work at full capacity. And that's the time when you really turn on the jets, because despite what TV will show you with NASCAR, the races are won in the pits. If you can shave two seconds off your time in the pits, going 220 miles an hour, that's an eighth of a mile advantage. While a lot of the economy is in the pits, if you can work, go 24 by seven. I said to my family about 16 weeks ago for the next 12 weeks, I'm just going to work around the clock seven days a week because I see a big opportunity here because I can do what I do regardless while everyone else is closing their studios, not writing, whatever it might be. I'm going to go really hard because I want to work less when we when we come out of it. So there's a meaningful opportunity to lap the competition. Now, the profound opportunity guy, the profound opportunity, and this goes back to the notion of, of Lenin had this great quote that sometimes decades happen and uh, decades go by and nothing happens. And then you can have weeks where decades happen. And I think the profound opportunity is for the repair and the cementing of key relationships. And that is, I think a lot of people uh, are struggling emotionally, financially, professionally. And I, I think if you can bring real grace and generosity and, and reach out to people and offer a hand, stop keeping score. Like, did you let your friendships wane because of perceived slights or bullshit competitiveness? Are, are you not the kid to your parents that you, they, that you want to be? Do you, if you had to say goodbye to your siblings over FaceTime because one of them got really sick, is the relationship where you would want it to be? If you can demonstrate real grace and generosity and reach out to people, there's an, a profound opportunity to cement and strengthen relationships. A meaningful opportunity is to lap the competition professionally. The profound opportunity presented in COVID-19 is the opportunity to repair and cement our key relationships. Hallelujah. Now that is the way That's to end better, right? That's better, right? <laughs> That's better. Okay, everybody, it's review time. Delightful and insightful. Rahul USA. The journey of becoming a remarkable person is fascinating and inspiring. Guy is an engaging conversationalist and talented interview. This is one podcast I really enjoy. Thank you, Rahul. And last but not least, Guy has great editors, Josh Reppant. Guy's interview with Karen Malarkey might be one of the best individual episodes I have ever listened to on any subject in any series. Well, that made my day. Ms. Malarkey is truly a national and global treasure, and Guy did a great job surfacing her incredible stories and insights. What I noticed in this episode is that Guy's editors are getting really good at the perfect insert of a bit of music. Their skill with this type of narrative artistry is growing, in my humble opinion. I'm a podcaster myself, so these types of flourishes are something I strive for. Great job, Remarkable People team. Listen to this one all the way through, twice. Let's just say I concur. I have great people working with me on this podcast. Namely, Jeff C., who does the sound editing, and Peg Fitzpatrick, who does all the marketing and all the promotion. Back to Scott Galloway. Tell me something. Have you ever heard anyone rip into Facebook and stupid decisions of politicians like Scott just did? Clearly. He's not trying to win any popularity contests. And that's one factor that makes him such a remarkable person. He is a data point for all of us to tell it like it is. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. Thanks to Elliot Grossbard for making this interview happen. I say this at the end of every episode, but remember, wear a mask, don't go into crowded places, 
wash your hands, and generally listen to doctors and scientists, not politicians. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.